Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm David Kern. And I'm Heidi White. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. You might have noticed that you didn't hear Tim McIntosh do his part of the introduction, and that's because he is not here with us right now. Before we dive into this conversation, which is going to be a conversation about Marilyn Robinson's novel, Home, we were, we're going to do a little bit of uh, housekeeping here, I suppose. We've got a number of things that we want to Another explain. novel by Marilyn Robinson, by the yeah. way. <laughs> so. I, that's very true. I didn't think about that. Although maybe there was something subconscious that the Probably. word housekeeping I'd like goes to think with there the was. word home. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to go with that. It was a subconscious bit of connection being made there by me. But we have some housekeeping to take care of before we dive into our conversation on the book. And uh, I want to start with a little bit of uh, information on what's going on with Tim right now, because he, he did give me permission to share this. Uh, Tim is moving right now. So he was going to be joining us for this series, but I think he is going to be um, taking a couple of weeks off because he's moving from Seattle back home to Georgia. And in the midst of all that, his, his dad has also been having some health problems. So um, he's going to be attending to his family, to his move. And so, you know, when he asked, hey, can I bow out on this one? We, of course, said, dude, do what you need to do. Take care of your family. Take care of yourself. Take care of your, uh, your, your, your move and your new living arrangements, all that kind of stuff. Take care of that. That's the most important thing. So if you would keep Tim in your thoughts and your prayers, um, you know, maybe send him a nice little note if, you, if you'd like to. As I said, his dad is um, dealing with some health problems, uh, some sort of long-term things that have crept back up. I'll let Tim share that if he wants to say more about that. But keep his, his family uh, in your prayers. And of course, moving across country is also a significant change as well. So um, there's a lot going on in his life. So he is going to be taking care of those things. So we're going to hold down the fort for you. Maybe we'll have a few uh, guest people here and there, but uh, Heidi and I will be discussing uh, home over the next uh, several weeks. Also, we have um, the Lord of the Rings shows that are going to be starting next week. Um, we were going to start them this week, but then Monday was Labor Day, and with everything going on with with Tim as well, we said, you know what? Let's let's t- let's take let's push that back a week. So we'll talk about. Um, an unexpected party, that first chapter next week. And so uh, by this time next week, that episode will be up. So our apologies if that's a great disappointment, which I trust that it is a great disappointment. So, you know. Yeah, it's hard to say you hope it's a disappointment. Yeah, right. But we will be getting that up for you very soon over on the Patreon page. So my apologies, that is not up already, but that's kind of uh, the background to the situation there. Um, should we talk about the bookstore? Yeah, of course we shall. We're talking about Goldberry David, books. what's going on in your life? I hear that there's some big changes coming up <laughs> that are exciting. What are they? So thank you. Thank you for asking, Heidi. You're welcome. <laughs> so uh, Bethany, my wife and I are opening an independent bookstore here in Concord. It's called Goldberry Books. And that's something that's happening this fall. So we are busily preparing for that. Most likely we'll be opening around November. We were thinking about November 1st, but then we realized that's like two days before election day. And so that might be a bad idea. Uh, so we're kind of waiting to see 
Um, it'll probably be like the second week of November in time for Thanksgiving and Christmas. If you, uh, you know, just because we just, we know everybody that listens to, to Close Reads needs another place to buy books online. So are we going to be able to buy books online through Goldberg? Oh yeah, absolutely. You'll be able to buy books from us online and um, we will ship oh. them to you. So you well, can buy... going to fly out every other week. Well, that's fine now... too. If people want to just come visit, take road trips, we, we would appreciate that. I mean, that, that's just as, just as good. I mean, it's actually better, but um, you'll be able to buy online. And then we'll also have a bookshop.org page specifically for Goldberry if you want to take that approach as well. So we have an Instagram page. I think it's Goldberry underscore book, something like that, if you want to follow along. And we did post the announcement on the Close Reads Facebook page. So you can follow us on our Facebook page, which I think Bethany is getting set up today. And then there also is a newsletter if you want to keep track of our progress as we install shelves and paint and upfit the space and start filling it with books and art and all kinds of things like that. Um, so that's, that's what's happening as well. The show will go on. This will not impact the podcast. I also will be continuing to work for Cersei. So those things aren't going away. This is just a new thing. Um, so we, this is something we've been, how do you know, we've been dreaming about this since we were, since we first met. So this is kind of, we've been thinking about it forever. A space opened up near a coffee shop uh, in our downtown. Um, coffee and books. Exactly. What could it. be better? Except wine and books. Well, they actually books, carry wine best. too in the coffee shop. Oh, well, so. first best then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All the bests. Um, so we kind of had been preparing for it for a long time. And then this spring, a number of things, a number of doors opened, I will say. And basically we are walking through doors that opened is how we feel like. We don't, we're not really pushing doors open. It just feels like we're walking through them. Mm. So on the 28th of August, I signed a lease for a bookstore, accepted an offer on our house and put an offer down on, a, on another house all in the same afternoon. So that was, so 82820 is going to be a day to remember, I hope. Or Going else it'll be, history. it'll be the day that we regret forever. I don't know. Maybe it'll be bad. <laughs> Nope, it's definitely going to be the first. It's going to be the best day. So we'll need to it's create a, a new <laughs> yeah, holiday. Exactly, we'll need to create a uh, close read section at the bookstore. So when you come, you can get your picture taken next to the close reads display in the bookstore with all our posters. Well, yeah, we are going to carry the we're going to carry the posters. We're going to display them. We're going to have some some Goldberry swag in addition to some close read swag. So maybe some Goldberry swag will be included in the Patreon for close reads as well. We'll, we'll I love see. this. Little, this is uh, getting better little crossover, better. you know, stuff going on there. So um, just wanted to clarify that Close Reads is still a Cersei thing. You know, it's when you're supporting the Close Reads Patreon, you are still supporting Cersei. So I wanted to make sure that there's no confusion about that. This is not in any way me leaving Cersei or anything like that. It's just mm-hmm. Bethany and I doing something we've been dreaming about doing for a long time. And it's in addition to my Cersei work. Your life the, is the so podcast. boring. I know, right? Well, that's why we had to do Can something. Can you like do something? We had to open the bookstore because we were bored. So Yeah. 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 We don't sit around much. Oh, hum. Um, exactly. <laughs> so um, my goal is eventually to have maybe, you know, some live recordings of this podcast. You know, do a little... Once this COVID thing is wrangled into submission, <laughs> then we can um, have some Close Reads events in the shop. That's my, my dream. So... Uh, hopefully in 2021. But in the meantime, we are here to discuss Marilyn Robinson's book, Home. However, we have one more thing to do before we do that because I need to share something from our friends over at Scully Academy. If you want to discover classical, restful, tutoring, tut, tut, 
tutoring online, head over to Scola Academy's personalized tutoring services. Scola Academy's team of master teachers and classical tutors is available year-round to help your students find confidence and delight in their studies. Choose from supplemental tutoring or private full-course instruction in subject areas such as Latin, writing, grammar, mathematics, logic, history, and more. Pricing and scheduling are flexible, so head over to Scola Academy, that's S-C-H-O-L-E academy.com to learn more and to submit a tutoring request. So in this time when, you know, more of you are homeschooling perhaps than thought you were going to be, a resource like Scola Academy is a, is a great one. We are always uh, happy to, and overjoyed to partner with them um, and all of our friends over at Classical Academic Press. So please do check out Scola Academy at scolaacademy.com and thanks to them for uh, supporting Close Reads this month. Let's talk home. Let's talk Marilyn Robinson. Heidi, when did this book come out? I, I 2008. 2008. 2008. So this was um, the much anticipated follow-up to Gilead, which of course we read in a previous year on the show and that won the Pulitzer Prize. So anytime an author wins the Pulitzer Prize, their next book is always highly anticipated. And Home was that novel from Marilyn Robinson. Is this the first time you've read this book? It is the first time I've read this. I've read Gilead and I have read Housekeeping and I have not read anything else. This is my first experience with this book. Okay. So I, I have not read Lila. I don't think, I think maybe I read some of it, but Home, well, of course her, her new book, Jack is coming out. I can't wait for that. And that comes out later this year. So it's interesting. Jack. And of course, Jack is a key character in Home. And my wife was telling me the other day that for her, Jack is one of her favorite literary characters. Mm -hmm. So we meet Jack in Gilead. We meet Jack here in Home, of course. He plays a key part. And then um, I think he's in Lila a little bit. But then that, that, this next book, which comes out at the end of this month, will be um, focusing, you know, especially on Jack. We're getting his perspective. And it goes back to his younger years, I believe, as well. So uh, we are actually going to be having a Marilyn Robinson week on Forma at the end of the month. So be on the lookout for that. So. In this book, Home, Heidi, who, who do you feel most um, kinship with? <laughs> That's and funny I, that you asked that because I had the word kinship in my head <laughs> as you were getting that out. So I was trying to, as I was reading it, I was, th- I was wondering, I wonder who Heidi has the most kinship with in this book. And, and I don't, I mean, I don't mean to make this like sort of a stereotypical thing, but of course we have the female character. Mm-hmm. who is roughly your age, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've got the Jack character and we've got uh, their father. And then we also have, off in the periphery, we have Ames, who is, of course, the main character in Gilead. And I was thinking about, you know, maybe the most obvious thing is, you know, the the female character who's roughly your age. But then Jack is such a sort of compelling character. He's sort of a mysterious character. And so I was wondering, who do you most gravitate towards? Um, so. Do you have a clear sense of that for yourself? Yes, absolutely. And it's Jack for sure. I think Glory's wonderful. Is that just because you yeah. named your son Jack? <laughs> <laughs> I really hope that someday Jack answers that question differently <laughs> by Jack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Which is, of course, because my son and this fellow share a name. Of course, I'm thinking of and um, share the identity of son. Um, yeah, true. I there am, are similarities. Course, thinking about it. Um, but 
I definitely, I, I really loved what she had to say. I know we'll talk about all about this. I, I did love what she had to say about teaching, but I don't necessarily relate to her angst about teaching and her experience with teaching, but you're right. You would Oh, glories, think, glories. Yeah, glories. Perspective, you would, yeah, yeah. In this, in this section. So, but yeah. you would think, it's an interesting question that you're asking and now I'm, I'm thinking about it pretty deeply. This is one of those books that, that lends itself to a lot of introspection on the part of the reader. And I, yeah. I think that that's part of the form and part of the content of this novel. And so I'm sure we'll talk about it a lot. Um, but you would think that I would relate a lot to Glory because she's roughly my same age and um, we share a profession. Uh, yeah. But it's definitely Jack. I'm the black sheep of my family. He's the black sheep of his. <laughs> so, well. <laughs> um, Go but, on. Yeah. Um, Can you tell us more about that? Why do you feel like you are the black sheep? No, I'm just yeah, kidding. Thank you for asking. How long do you know? I'm just kidding. I, I did say that as a joke, but there is some truth to it. There There's something about him as the beloved and the adored character, the character everybody's always thinking about, but nobody understands, nobody feels connected to, mm. uh, he, and that he is this constant um, scapegoat as well as an object of adoration and desire mm. yeah. in her novels. And, mm. and there's just this haunted quality to him as a character and this very deep sadness and pathos um, and mystery to him. Um, mm. Yeah, he's both yeah. haunted and sort of, you know, like it talks so much in this book about how pale he is. Yeah. And I was thinking about how the, he almost is described in a sort of like ghost-like manner and how he he's both haunted and also seems to haunt the periphery yeah. of these stories. Even in Gilead, his sort of um, lack of living up to expectations mm -hmm. is hovering over the periphery of the story and how much, you know, for example, uh, Ames's son in Gilead loves or looks up to Jack, finds him intriguing, haunts the story. Um, and that's a really interesting idea for a book called Home, right? right? Yes. The idea of something being haunted. And um, so I was thinking a lot about what this first 50 pages does. We read up through page, page like three through page 50 or whatever. And I was thinking about all the different, the different things this section has to do in a book like this. Because, you know, you read a, say you read a, like, you read a crime novel, right? I mean, you see this in movies all the time, but you read a crime novel, there's certain things that the first 50 pages have to do. You have mm -hmm. to set up the central mystery. You have to get to know your detective. You have to ask, a, get a bunch of central questions out there that keep the reader reading, that keep them interested, that, that, that identify the sort of core problem. Um, it's the same thing with, you know, uh, you know, a road book, you know, a book that's about a journey. Like you have to identify a core problem that sends people on their way and a destination and explore why the people want to get there. Um, you know, if you've got a, a romantic novel, you know, a Pride and Prejudice type novel, you have to set up your, uh, either have to have a meet cute or set up the sort of reasons why the characters, you know, they're supposed to be together, but why it's going to be a long road to get them there or something like that. Okay. This book is, is a very serious book, I was thinking. And I don't mean serious like, I mean, it is serious in the sense that it's like heavy, but it's also just, this is a literary, this is a piece of literary fiction, right? Yes. Like when you think of serious American novels about sort of adult things, this is 
what that mm-hmm. this fits in that genre, so to speak, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And so what it's doing in the first 50 pages of the book, and it's got a lot of work it has to do. And it's not you it's not like let's check some boxes to make sure our reader is still with us. So I was wondering if you could help me think through that. Like as mm-hmm. we look at this first section, a book about a book called Home about people on a homecoming. What are some of the things that you feel like this book is setting out to do for the reader in the first 50 pages? That's such a good question. I think- Sorry, that, that was long-winded to get no, there. No, that, that kind of litany of the, the work a certain genre of novel has to do in the first 50 pages in order to capture the attention of the reader and set up the rest of the novel. Um, in a book like this- it's exactly the same thing. It's just a different kind of novel as you're pointing yeah. out. And, but in that litany of things that, that a novel has to do in the first 50 pages, really what you're talking about is the, you have to tell the reader what's at stake. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you have to give the readers the conflict, what's at stake. And then the, the players who are going to be involved in unraveling this yeah. mystery yeah. And, and I think in this, in this novel, you have less of a concrete plot that you have to get across and more of what's at stake in the relationships, what's Mm -hmm. at stake in the hearts of these people, Mm -hmm. um, what's at stake in the community that they represent. Mm. And, um, and you brought up that this is a quintessentially American literary fiction kind of novel in it and you're you're right and that is always what's at stake in an, in a deeply american novel right is that what is as on there's this veneer of perfection in the new world although that's fading quickly uh in this generation mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. in past generations that's always been what are the fault lines in the american culture um even though it's such a deeply optimistic land what mm-hmm. is the fault? and so american novels tend to lay those things bare and marilyn yeah. robinson's novels are no different and i think that yeah. we see that here so what i mean back the question then back to you if that if you think what i'm saying is right what do you think is at stake here well, I, it's really interesting to me to think about that within the context of what the title's book is, right? Mm-hmm. The, 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 the book's title is, the title's book. The title's book is also, I suppose, a thing. The <laughs> book is called Home. And I was thinking about how the first 10 pages so extensively describe the house. Yeah. You know, like in the second page of the book, we get descriptions like... Um, there was an oak tree in front of the house, much older than the neighborhood or the town, which made rubble of the pavement at its foot and flung its imponderable branches. By the way, imponderable branches is a wonderful like, phrase, set of words. Out over the road and across the yard, branches whose girths were greater than the trunk of any ordinary tree. There was a torsion in its body that made it look like a giant dervish to them. Uh, skip ahead. There had been four swings suspended from those branches. Uh, the oak tree flourished still. And then the next paragraph on page four, why should this staunch and upright house seem to her so abandoned, so heartbroken, the eye of the beholder, she thought. Um, And this, so at the very beginning here, we get a whole bunch of descriptions of what the house looked like as she's remembering what it was like to be there as a child. And so to me, it made me think, the book is called Home. And the first few pages are about her experience as a child living in this house. Mm -hmm. And so much of it describes the house. And it it reminded me of, you know, um, like a Bronte novel, 
like mm. almost an Americanized version of the way they might describe some great manor in Jane Eyre or huh. Wuthering Heights or something. Like there is this, um, or, or maybe even following in the footsteps of like Faulkner in his book and his fiction, where homes and houses and these these old structures loom in the memory of these people in a way that is both haunting and and uh, celebrated. And so it made me think, you know, is the central one of the central questions of this book the degree to which a home is connected to a house? Hmm. Like that seemed to be the question that to me that that in this reading. And maybe it's because I'm moving that <laughs> that's in my brain. Right. I don't know, in my subconscious. But, you know, it's about home. And these are, there's two different characters coming home here, right? Right. And they're coming home for very different reasons. And it's interesting to me that, um, I mean, uh, hovering over this story is the prodigal son story, right? Yes, yes. And basically what Robinson has done here is create the father who has been waiting for years for the prodigal son to come home. And then you get... The she glory is sort of this, and well, then you get the child, the, the you get the prodigal son, you get the father, and then ostensibly, then glory is the older brother who is doing the labor, right? And who is in some ways judging the brother, but maybe not as harshly as the in the parable, right? But you're getting this sort of triumvirate, which is mirroring the triumvirate in the parable of the prodigal son. And when he comes home around page 40 or something like that, 35, the way it describes the father, Boughton hugging the son and the son being um, sort of anxious, unsure, not feeling at home. It, it, it's, it strikes me that it is so much akin with the, the parable. And right. it's, it's almost like on the nose how much it's like that, right? Um, but not in a way that I think is flawed. I think it's, you know, it, I think it's in a way that's very, quite interesting. But then right. it calls, it, it, it suggests to me, like the conflict to me does not seem to be Tell me if you think I'm crazy here. It doesn't seem to be between these three characters. It seems to be between this place yep. and how they remember it and how they live within that memory. Because I don't think that they are at odds with one another. I think what they are is uncomfortable with one another. And so they're collectively trying to reach for some sort of peace within their within the three of them within these first 50 pages and their memories are what is the the memory of being in that place together in a different time and how complicated that was it seems to be the thing that is keeping them from connecting now hmm. and so the house it's both a story of homecoming but also a story of a house being haunted in a way mm-hmm. and that haunting or them being haunted by the memory of what that place used to be that keeps them from having peace now. Do you buy that construct? I, I've never thought of it in those terms before. I think that your, I mean, like I said, this is the first time I've read the novel and this is a novel that- Have you finished it by the way? No. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. I read ahead a little, but I haven't okay. finished it. Okay. And I was, I think what I find so What is the word? There's many words. So haunting is the first word that comes to mind. I feel like every one of, um, every page of Marilyn Robinson's writing is haunted by something. And that's in Mm. all two and 50 pages of the books that I've read. So I'm not, by no means am I an expert in Marilyn Robinson. But there's this weight, there's this sadness. But what's really interesting to me 
is I can't always trace it to its source yeah. in her writing. And that is pretty rare for me as a reader. I usually, I mean, we just, we've read several sad books in a row now. I mean, other than Anne of Green Gables, there've been, which has a, which has sad parts, but it's not a sad book, right? But Crime and Punishment, sad. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> the Sun Also Rises, sad. Um, Catcher in the Rye, sad. And I feel... And and yeah. all of them we've debated. It must be 2020. Team, right? All three of us, we've debated at the source of the sadness, but we've always had an opinion about it. I think it's this. I think it's this. I, you know, mm-hmm. like, and, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes we change each other's minds. But with Marilyn Robinson, I, I don't always know. And I think mm-hmm. that. Do you think the characters know? No, I. Is do that not. why you don't know? Maybe, maybe that's some of it. And so. All that to say what you just said about your theory about place, place is, place is one of the ghosts in Marilyn Robinson. Every, everybody's a ghost. Everything that's, everything's haunted. Mm-hmm. And, and the place is, not only is it haunted, but it's a ghost itself. And, um, and I, it's funny, we're reading Merchant of Venice uh, over on the, plays on, the, the thing. on the plays, the thing. And the first lines of Merchant of Venice, okay, if I read them, here's, Please. I wrote them down this morning because I was like, this is Merchant of Venice. This is, this is the embodiment of these first lines of the play. Mm. Um, it's Antonio speaking. This is a comedy, and this is how the play opens. In sooth, he says, I know not why I am so sad. Mm. It wearies me. You say it wearies you. But how I caught it, found it, came by it, what stuff tis made of, whereof it is born, I am to learn. And such a want wit sadness makes of me that I have much ado to know myself. Mm. I'm like, this book is these lines. Mm. Like, why is glory so sad? Why is, why is their father so sad? Like he, even that first page, I'm trying to answer your question in a roundabout way. Um, on page three, the very first page of the novel, this line in the middle of the second paragraph says the house embodied for him, the general blessedness of his life which was manifest, mm-hmm. really indisputable. And all throughout, Bouton's always talking about how happy he is and how blessed he is and how God has done so much for him. And yet he's this is like a great the point. saddest person. And, you- and they want to orient that towards Jack, but that's not enough of an explanation for me. I don't think Jack can bear the full weight of that. And I think that's part of why Jack is so sad because mm-hmm. he knows everybody's, scapegoating him for it but it's not all about him and she recognizes that because of that scene towards the end of the reading for this week when she's when she's looking back at her childhood and she goes up to him and she says why do you have to be she was like nine why do you have to be so yeah. strange and there's this line where it's like he looked basically it describes the sadness that he looks back at her with that he that he recognizes that they all feel this way about him and he can't you know what's you know i think in a way what's haunting Boughton is is not that his son didn't live up to his expectations. It's that he was never able to connect with him. Mm-hmm. He was never able to reach him. And, and I think that's why, you know, the, some, of the, some of her memories where she's listening to him talk about how um, when Bouton is preaching, right? He would be preaching to his family. And sometimes when Jack would come in, he'd start speaking about forgiveness. And so right. from the, the pulpit, God. right, from the pulpit, he's reaching out. It's like the only way he can reach out to Jack to express his love for him is to do it in the form of a prayer or a sermon. Mm-hmm. And that like, that's powerful and it's good, 
but it's also there is something broken between them that he can't that that the that like he feels like he needs the mediation of a prayer or a sermon right. to express to his son how he feels about him. It's displaced. And, There's yeah. always a barrier between everybody so far in this novel. And yeah. I, that's true in Gilead too, in which Ames wrestles with feeling that maybe it was his fault because he never blessed Jack because he never liked him, right? There's always yeah. these barriers that there's... There, there's not all just like the Merchant of Venice line. There's not always an explanation, but I think that that works. It's not a flaw. It's I think it's what makes her a beautiful writer because that's part of kind of the hauntedness of being human. Is why is there a barrier between me and my dad? Why is there? Why can't? Why, how can I love someone and completely miss them all the time? Mm-hmm. In the sense of like ships in the night, kind of missing, like mm-hmm. just staying disconnected and that she explores that in all of her work and it is tremendously sad and it's not a flaw that we can't always trace it um to a source uh or a moment or you know even your point about the prodigal son you're exactly right it is a prodigal son story but in the parable there's this catharsis when the prodigal comes home and he's welcomed by the father there's a transformation there's there's a moment of connection in which those barriers are overcome and that does not happen in the first 50 pages of home. Well, and I think to me, this is a story like what we're going to read the rest of the way is what happens after the parable is over. Mm. So Christ told a parable with the prodigal son and he got to a certain point and he said, this is, this is what I mean by this, but he doesn't continue the story. He doesn't continue the story about how, what they had to do for the prodigal son to readjust. You know, there's a lot that gets left unsaid in the years that followed after the prodigal son comes home. Now I know there's the dinner with the son and all, like he doesn't just end it right when the prodigal son comes home. But, you know, Jesus in that parable doesn't get into, you know, the, the, all the things, all the the living that had to happen. Yeah. Um, And we get the part in the parable. I, I was thinking about this. We get the part in the parable where the father goes to the older son and says, you know, the son who I loved is, he basically says, you know, I'm happy. He's back. Give him a break, you know, in the parable. But we don't get a lot of interaction between the two brothers and the, and the prodigal son. And I, I wonder if like Marilyn Robinson over the years kept hearing that story and thought, what was it like after that? What was it like mm-hmm. between the older brother and the younger brother? How did they learn to coexist in a home where the prodigal son is inherently filled with so much guilt but wants right. to be reunited with the family. And that's why I think there's so much in these first 50 pages about the notion of forgiveness. Right. Um, like there's, there's um, that line where, you know, he's talking about that agnostic neighbor <laughs> yes. that he has. Yes. And it says, each spring the agnostic neighbor sat his borrowed tractor with the straight back and high shoulders of a man ready to be challenged. Unsociable as he was, he called out heartily to passers-by like a man with nothing to hide, intending perhaps to make the Reverend Boughton know and know the town at large knew too that he was engaged in trespass. This is the very act against which Christians leveraged the fate of their own souls since they were, if they listened to their own prayers, obliged to forgive those who trespass against them. And then, you know, the the notion of forgiveness, the difficulty of forgiveness is something that's um, brought up again and again and again. And also hovering behind that theme is not just forgiving, but 
being forgiven mm. and that um the interaction of those two um what's the word two statures or stances or whatever the word is postures, is a comp- postures yeah. yeah the posture of forgiving and being forgiven on the one hand the obvious relationship in this book is that jack and uh, the reverend and glory have to forgive jack and he he has to put himself in a stance where he's asking for forgiveness and they have to navigate the tenuousness of that relationship but i think also hovering on uh, over this is a sort of recognition or coming to a recognition that it goes the other way as well mm-hmm. that right. Bowton needs to be forgiven by Jack and Jack needs to be willing to forgive. And in order for them to coexist, for there to be peace, for there to be something, um, to be something healthy, it has to go both ways. And hovering behind the scenes of that is the fact that Jack is a ghost and Bowton is near death. And the time, like there is a sort of um, crisis of time because Bowton is old and he's not healthy and he can barely move and he's constantly sleeping. You know, he's going to die mm-hmm. uh, before too long. And this has to happen before, you know, those two stances have to happen on both sides before he dies. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, that will haunt Jack and Glory forever. And so that's like the tension of this book. Are they going to be able to come to a point where they offer some re- sort of... Re- like, that's the catharsis. Mm-hmm. And that's also the hope, right? That's one of the things that offers the book some hope that like, how are they going to work towards that mm-hmm. before he dies? And like, there is a lot of hope in a lot of the theological reflections that happen in these first 50 pages. And most of them are centered around the idea that it is possible for forgiveness between people who have wronged one another mm-hmm. to, to be forgiven and to forgive. Um, and there's that, man, there's that, there's a section I starred like crazy. <laughs> They're on page 45. She sends him upstairs with a cookie on a saucer. Yeah. She thought, I'll give him these things and go away. And he'll see it as a simple kindness. And that will be a beginning. Like that is such an interesting, this is mm-hmm. such a deep psych- psychological novel. I'm yes, just thinking about how much you might have, you must have enjoyed that. Yes. It goes on. There is a saying that to understand is to forgive. But that is an error. So Papa used to say, you must forgive in order to understand. Until you forgive, you defend yourself against the possibility of understanding. Her father had said this in more than once in sermons with appropriate texts, but the real text was Jack, and mm-hmm. those to whom he spoke were himself and the row of Boutons in the front pew, which usually did not include Jack, and then, of course, the congregation. If you forgive, he would say, you may indeed still not understand, but you'll be ready to understand, and that is the posture of grace. And I think this is like offering us the central sort of crux, the central sort of tension in the novel is this question of forgiveness. Right. All of which is haunted by the immutability of the house to use the, and that is yes. oppressive in ways that could easily have been changed, but were not. You know, that to me is so haunting. It's on 44 or 40. The, ha- the dining room was immutable, like the mm-hmm. rest of the house, this immutable house, but it was oppressive in ways that could easily have been changed. Yes. But, but then this, the implication there is it wasn't. Like it was a p- immutably oppressive, but it could have been changed, but they never changed it. Like they could have done things to make it a better, a, a more welcoming place to live, but for whatever reason, they never did. And never having done that is what's one of the things that's holding them back from that 
state of that stance of understanding and forgiveness. Right. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think one thing, one thing for our listeners who are constantly asking this question, what is an objective correlative, right? This book is full of them. So in, and the house is one of those things. The house is, I mean, it's definitely symbolic and metaphorical and all about that, but it's also objective. One of the reasons that these people feel as though their lives cannot be changed is because their environment is never changed. And this goes back to what the, the theory you, you posited um, several minutes ago, which as I'm processing it and thinking about it, I'm thinking... Yes, I think that the the home itself, the physical place, the house, is this objective correlative to this entrenched uh, and constant state of decrepitude that these people are and loneliness that these people find themselves in. Um, and an objective correlative in the story is something that happens, an object in the story that correlates with the way people are feeling and provides an explanation for the way people are feeling. Um, and mm. and so I think that the house really works for that, the dining room specifically in that scene. Mm-hmm. And one thing I've always wondered, I love that that whole understand, forgive, um, the reversal that takes place there. I think it's a very redemptive reversal that forgiveness is... Uh, uh, opens us up to understanding. If we are determined to forgive, then we have to be determined to understand mm-hmm. rather than just be proven wrong, right? And Yeah, uh, this stance that you have to understand something before you forgive them Yes, is not forgiving at all. Uh, no, it's not because then it's, then it's you have a case and you're demanding that someone overturns your case in order to forgive, right? Right, right. Um, and, and if you reverse that and say, I am determined to forgive, Please help me understand. Right? Mm-hmm. That's, but what I don't see in this novel or in Gilead um, is is the 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 question: Why not sit down with Jack and say, "I want to understand you. Tell me about your life. Like, tell me, are you? Tell me, right? And- help me understand." There's just this internal posture, and I think that's one of the things that Boughton does that that fails Jack is that he's determined to do everything inside and then that will change Jack instead of creating a bond. Like, let's sit down and talk about our relationship. It sounds so easy, but... Right, right. And that's the trouble is like, it's not that easy to do that. Of course it isn't. Making it, having a connection with a person is so difficult. And that's one of the things that is is described in so much pathos in this section Mm -hmm. is like, there's the scene where... um, he catches her dropping books off in the, his room or something like that. And he's just kind of standing there and they can't figure out what to say. And she even imagines a conversation. Yeah. And then in the conversation at the end of it, he leaves and she feels guilty because it chases him away. And then you get the scenes where they're at the dinner table or he's washing his shirt and they can't like finding the right thing to say feels so strained. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think that's familiar for anybody who has been in a, you know, any sort of conflict or had any sort of a difficult relationship with someone or been wronged by someone or wronged somebody and you're trying to make peace. And it's just so precisely drawn by Robinson Mm -hmm. that I think it's like, those are the sort of core scenes in the book that like tether it to like make it such a universal thing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, because we don't all like the specific scenarios we don't all understand, but we understand the difficulty of 
interacting with people who, with whom your connection is broken, even right. if it's just temporarily, you know, like with a spouse or a sibling or whatever, there are times when your connection is broken right? and you, well, and like the interaction is strained. Right. No, it's true. And I think to, to expand that from the, that the interior world and then to the world of the family that's portrayed in the novel, the world of the Boutons and to expand that even another circle outward, there is a commentary here from Marilyn Robinson, who is herself a Christian and a Calvinist um, on the nature of American spirituality um, that, that in putting her, <laughs> putting a microscope onto the town of Gilead and the families of the people in ministry there, um, she is examining what it looks like to be a, a, an evangelical specifically, um, den- denominationally, um, bound Christian in an American small town. And there is a cultural commentary on that and a spiritual commentary on that in, in which Boughton, it's not, it's not an allegory, but it is a, there, we do have the question of, is the kind of Christianity that this family is so committed to, especially through their father, is it sufficient to the task of modern problems and mm. in a changing world? And that's mm. one of the questions that Marilyn Robinson is asking. Um, and and one of the, the reasons why her novels are so incisive um, and so uh, powerful and, and why specifically American Christians should pay attention because there's a real question that she's asking here. Are we doing enough to connect with the next generation as a church? Uh, is the mm. culture that we've created in, in, in small town American Christianity, is it, is it sufficient to the task of modern problems and the things that people are dealing with? And that's a question that all of us who are believers are asking right now. Uh, and Marilyn Robinson is putting that question with embedded within the fabric of this family in this home. Mm. And it seems like Glory is in a position where, I mean, it's, it's, it's striking that, you know, their mother has died. Mm-hmm. Um, and that she's, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that she's there to create, she has to, she has the task of creating the space in which her father and brother can reconcile. Right. And like, it's interesting the way she attends to these little things and, you know, whether it's, you know, the specificity of uh, ordering the roast beef, the two pounds of potatoes uh, and the two pounds of potatoes from the grocery store and then making biscuits. And, you know, uh, she, she, you know, she's, uh, it talks about the way, the, the way she decorates the room and the way she sets the table and the, Mm -hmm. you know, the lighting of candles and the washing of dishes and um, the way she prepares his room. And there is a sort of, it is her task to cultivate an environment in which their connection can become possible. Mm-hmm. And there's a, you know, in a way that's a sort of like utilitarian role for her in the book. Um, but the table setting that she does is so important. I agree. And it's got so much pressure behind it, you know? Mm-hmm. Like if she, it's, it's why she feels like, guilty about things she said to Jack when he was a kid or when they were kids. It's why she feels worried about the kind of interactions they're going to have because she's worried she's going to scare him away because she knows the power she has, the important role that she plays. 
and it make it's kind of an unforgiving role, you know, in this this book, or kind of like a unglamorous role. Um, and I don't know that she even recognizes totally what she's doing, you know. The the but within the context of the book, she's the one that has to make the home in which uh, the family can be, you know, uh, restored. Mm-hmm. And there's, and I said the word pressure a minute ago, there's so much pressure on her to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think that in the midst of that, her sadness about their past and her recognition of what happened in the past and, and the difficulties that they all had connecting is, is haunting it. And so she's trying to almost like restore something that was broken years before. And, you know, that's a, right. it's hard enough to make a home in the present, right? Let alone a yes. home in the present that's haunted by the past. Right. Um, and her ability to do that is one of the, th- whether she can do that, whether she can pull that off is going to be such a crucial part of whether the family gets restored. And I think that that, that is such a um, complicated aspect to this novel that Robinson drops in. Um, but it's also, it's interesting because in a way you're kind of like, there's this like women's work thing mm-hmm. going on there yes. where some people might say, well, why, you know, is this meant to be like a criticism of that by Robinson? Is it meant to be a sort of celebration of something that's now, you know, not celebrated the way it was? And so I'm curious what you think of that. Like, yeah, how, yeah, how do I you take that- this role of glory in the book? Yeah, I think it's really important as you're saying. And because <laughs> one of the things that Jack does in in this novel, and I cannot help but bring what I know from Gilead into yeah, this sure. novel. Yeah. Right? I'm sure Even a lot of readers will have read each it. Each yeah. of them stands alone. Right. You can pick up the book and in, in, in this first 50 pages, you can know Jack. I think it does stand alone. Mm-hmm. But I am influenced by my reading of Gilead. And um in my understanding of him as a character and his role in the family, which he's the black sheep of the family, rightfully so, um, because he's uh, he he's a thief and a liar, and he impregnated a girl and abandoned her, and he's an alcoholic. I mean, he's um, he's a he's a morally disreputable person. <laughs> um, so, in that sense, he's a black sheep. There's another sense in which he's the black sheep, and that is the fact that nobody can settle down into conventionally feeling good about the veneer culture of their family when Jack is there. He's a constant Mm. reminder that if you set a table, it isn't enough to build a relationship. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. um, and there, and everybody else is willing to play along with that except Mm. for him. And, and, there is a sense in which setting a beautiful table, I mean, that's you and I both value that a lot, like a lot. So yeah. to set a beautiful table, to cook a really good meal, a special thing, to create an experience is, uh, is, is, an, is a valuable and important and I think an essential form within a relationship. But it, is, does, it cannot take the place of the content of a relationship. Um, mm. And... And I think that it's Jack who's the constant thorn in the side of that. It's Jack who's like, sure, I'll come sit at the table, but we all know I don't have a relationship with you people. Right. And there's yeah. there's something about 
the constant, and I think that's one of the sources of sadness, even in just talking about it, is this constant attempt in a, in a, in a, a righteous and a holy attempt to create the form, right? And to like gather and welcome people at the table. And then, um, but with, with Jack there, there's just this, this lack that's always brought about. And, and to be honest, the lack is always there. It's not like with when Jack's gone, Bouton and Glory are sitting around really talking about their past and creating meaningful connection with each other, but they're both content with that. They, they don't yeah. push it or maybe content's the wrong word, but they don't push that. But it's Jack's presence that upsets that, um, kind of the delicate house of cards that they've built. Um, and in saying that, I realize I sound very condemning of this family, and I don't mean to, because it's obvious that they have this great love for each other. And I think it's the those people like Jack that are necessary in a family like this. Well, their love for Jack is what's why is why they're haunted. Yes, yes, it is. They're and not that, haunted but, because he's actually a ghost. But I think there's more to it. I agree. I think that he, he is the he's the scapegoat of it, and he's the symbol. He carries the weight of it. He's the objective correlative of it. But it's there whether he's there or not. And like even the way, and you could tell from the beginning when she starts talking about how everybody's around at Christmas, she can't even remember the last time that the house was empty. Uh, but there's still this sense of these of the children trying to make up for Jack. Right, they're always around, and they're always sending cards to Grandpa. No, nowhere, and this is again only told from Glory's perspective. But nowhere does it say that they're they're all this close, happy family that just like loves to be around each other. And it's more like they're gathering around the ghosts. Hmm. And and the the source of that is the mystery, maybe of the novel. Maybe that's what's at stake is trying to trace that and and understand and forgive. Um, hmm. But there does seem to still be a haunted quality to the family. I don't know that Jack's the only one responsible for that. I don't know. What do you think? No, no. That? I th- I think that Jack is the like sort of. Um. I don't know what the metaphor is. I think that they're all responsible for it. Right. And that Jack is like this. Um, this force that none of them knew how to interact with. Like, you know, he, the idea that he was left out by all of them or couldn't connect with any of them was part of what's haunting them it's i mean he's he's central to it but it's not only his fault right um and he's the one who bears the weight of it right he's the one that he's the scarlet a in the family um to use another literary (laughs) well you know there's that bit where i think it's when he walks in the door it says something like she opened the door and then Jack, I was about to give up, give up on you. Come in. Mm-hmm. And I think that line is carefully chosen yes, because this yes. idea of I was about to give up on you is, is essentially what they have probably been feeling like their whole life. And he has been feeling like they feel like, you know? Yes. And I would, but but the idea I was about to give up on you is both haunting and hopeful at the same time, right? 
because you're on the verge, but you haven't stepped over into the into the hopelessness yourself, right? Like I was about to give up on you is to say, I have not yet given up on you. Right. And now here you are. So please come in, you know, like you're always welcome here. But then he's haunted by the idea that they're always on the verge of giving up on him. Right. Um, and there's this culture of unsaid things in this family that I think- Yeah, they're distant and respectful and tentative, it says. Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, even, so you you alluded to the passage in which she goes, she goes into the room, which she's trying to be courteous with this room, right? Because mm-hmm. she gives him the room that he didn't have as a child. So it wouldn't have all these heavy associations with his past. Um, and so there's an act of kindness in that, but it's an unsaid kindness. It's something that they notice, but they don't say out loud. And the father, you know, Bouton did that for her. And she, if she appreciated it, but she didn't say it. And then when she gets in the room, she's there with the towels and she is looking around out of curiosity, but she's not snooping. She's, she's curious. She wants to know like, what is, she, she notices that he's taken a picture of, I think, trees and birds from another room that he, that he obviously had an affection for. Right. So the natural Mm -hmm. thing for a family that talks about things, say the Kern family, for example, right. Um, You might, you have a, as you've said, you have a reasonable amount of dysfunction in your family, but it is, (laughs) it's a good, healthy family. So you would, if I can see something like that happening in which you might, let's say one of you walks into the room, notices something like that. And you turn and you say, Oh, I noticed that you brought that picture from the other room. Do you like that picture? Right? Like (laughs) you say it. And then if you turn around and you see, she sees Jack looking at her with that sardonic, sarcastic smile. Like he knows that she's been snooping. He makes the assumption, she assumes that he's making an assumption and there's this unsaid communication. And then here's what she could have said. Oh, I really wasn't snooping. I was just curious. And I noticed that you got this picture. That's mm-hmm. like what regular people in regular relationships would handle. That's how they yeah. would handle it. Yeah. But there is this kind of undercurrent of unsaid things. There's this, um, there's there's a culture in the family that yeah. you don't say everything. And there's unwritten, in any kind of family like that, there's always unwritten rules about what you can say and what you can't say. And mm-hmm. everybody knows the rules, mm-hmm. even though they're not stated. Well, and that is happening here. And you see that. And there, then you just yeah. have a house full of disconnected people. I think that's why he keeps saying things like, it's good of you to say that. Because remember, right. like he says, some, she says something like, I'm just glad you're here. And he says, it's good of you to say that. And mm-hmm. then there's that line where she says something like, um, you can't know how much it means to him to have you here. And he says, it's good of you to say that. And there's this, you know, he keeps saying things like, it's good of you to say that as if, right. you know, as if there's some subconscious thing that's like, finally, you're saying it, or things are finally being said out loud, or thank you so much for saying it out loud. And, and maybe in a way it's like, um, he's being, I don't know if it's sarcastic is the word, but he's saying, it's nice of you to say it, even if you don't mean it. But to say things out loud is, is, uh, is a meaningful thing. And I think he seems to recognize that and be grateful for the idea that things are actually being said. Mm-hmm. Um, because so much of the time, they're not being said. And that's why, and, and, and honestly, Bouton can only say things that are meaningful to Jack in the form of a long-winded prayer right. that Jack has to end himself. Yeah. Just like he could only ever say something to him by giving a sermon to a congregation. Um, and Bouton's inability himself 
to say things directly to Jack is, you know, part of why there's a disconnect. It's not just that Jack doesn't buy into the sort of ethos of the family from, right. from childhood. It's that there's things that have been left unsaid. And now it is, there's a reckoning when things are not said. Mm-hmm. And that reckoning is here. You know, the yeah. three of them have to, the two of them have to sort of have a reckoning of the things that they never said all those years. And Glory is the one who has to set the table for that yes. conversation to be had. And make a space for it. And then it yeah. isn't done. And that, and so it, it remains in some sense an empty place setting. And again, she has house, to like curate that conversation. You know, it's right. really powerful thing. Which is, is the young, not, should not be to a youngest child to have to do, but she's, you know, she's the lady of the house now, but she's also yeah. dealing with her own weight of grief mm-hmm. and the way that Boughton um, loves her and Jack is to try to create a space for them to be in their home. Right. Like just mm-hmm. to get and to give them space, which is a healthy and a, that's a holy thing to do, to create space for people, to make room for people. And the house embodies the general blessedness of his life. Um, and of course, if that's true, we have to take also the the um, the fact that the house is crumbling and decaying and uh, what whatever that phrase is about the dining room, oppressively. Immutable. Immutable. Mm-hmm. Uh that's also part then of the of how Boughton is perceiving the general blessedness of his life, which is just fix the dining room. Yeah. Right? I think, like update it, do something yeah. different. Yeah. And he there, won't, he can't. Well, and there's this line where she says, I think she's taking, well, after Jack gets there, she goes and takes her father and she's like helping him. And she realizes there's this, still this disconnect for them. And there's this line that goes that she realizes what her job was. Hmm. And it's like, she now has to figure out how to set the table for right. them to discuss. And part of that is to, to open some windows, to, to redecorate the space, to change things, to, to get rid of the haunted qualities of this place so that the two of them can have a resolution. Because until the two of them reckon with, you know, have, a, have this reckoning, then the rest of them can't have a true reckoning. Like in, right. she and Jack can't ever truly have a connection until Jack and her father have a reckoning. Cause that right. the absence of a relationship between the two of them will always haunt even the best of times between Gloria and Jack. Right. And so if she doesn't successfully actually get rid of the sort of oppressive immutability of the home, then that reckoning may never lead to anything. Right. Um, right. And so her role is so powerful. So important. Because there is, I completely agree. And that's, I mean, what is it that they say in Gilead about the names that the boys are named after Bible characters and the girls are named after abstract theological concepts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right, so there is this, this, this weight of glory, right? (laughs) To, Mm. to her. Um, And she doesn't, she is the last child uh, you know, she's the end of the line. Like she's, she's the last one. She's the one to absorb everything. Um, she's the only one that, that gets to live with her parents alone. Um, and she talks about that and the impact that that made on her. And there's those heartbreaking several pages about how she, uh, at the inner life that she developed 
in relationship to Jack and how she thought that they were, they had this special bond and that it was her job to interpret and to, to promote this healing. So she takes her father out to the country to see the baby. And, um, that's, that's a weight, right? Mm -hmm. That's a big weight. Mm -hmm. Um, even then she was trying to offer a space for them to reconcile. She doesn't know how. And, and, and Bounton's, you know, whether he's the source of the wound or whether just insufficient to the wound mm-hmm. is still yeah. remains to be explored in the novel. And it may um, be both. Yeah, it may be both. But for him to provide a home that for them, for these wounded children of his to come home to, the older brother and the prodigal um, archetypes here, that's that's a holy thing. That's a good thing. Then that could potentially be a healing thing, but it cannot be done completely in silence. And, and that so far is what he has offered to them is just a place where they can be safe and not re-traumatized, so to speak, and just kind of dwell in silence together. And, and that is, Hmm. that is insufficient to full healing. Um, And, and so it remains to be seen how the story is going to trace those threads. But I think that's what's at stake in these first 50 pages. And I think food and meals is going to have a, is a, is a super important part of that because she keeps setting this table. Yeah. So like setting the table for their reckoning is like a metaphor, but it's also literal. And yeah. it has, you know, like it's so important that she's preparing. And she senses that, right? She tries to make this really nice yes. Sunday dinner, that's right? Really like good, it's, David. right? It's like, it's like the kind of meal they want to put into the oven the roast beef and the potatoes. It's a right. Midwestern Sunday morning meal, right? So she tries to make this Sabbath meal that their mother would have put in the oven before church. And at the end of the day, or after the sermon, they would have come back and had served, you know, meat and potatoes to some. Right. Meat, potatoes, biscuits, and pie to some, what was it, lofty theologian that That's was right. visiting. Yep. And the children would have to, you know, swing their feet from the piano bench and try to be good. Um, and so she recognizes that the, that, Maybe she's hopeful anyway that the the way to do that is to provide uh, a meal for both of these two men that that have not had that right in a long time. And in a way, you know, Bowden himself has been rejected. He's mm-hmm. been rejected by the church. He's old. He's yep. you know he's frail. He's not you know he he this once powerful you know influential eloquent guy is now yeah in his twilight near, years. Yeah, he's in the twilight. He's <laughs> And that, and that's and why grieving again, that's, himself, full of grief himself, yeah. right? And there's been, um, you know, as you said, she has tried in the past to help them reconcile, and it didn't work. And this is the last chance. And they all know that it's the last chance. Jack's. That's why Jack's come home because yeah. his father's near the end. Uh, he's at his wit's end as well. You know, like he is needs the help, but he also recognizes this is the last chance to to have any, you know, to, to reconcile. And, and that weight is on Boughton and glory knows it. Everybody knows it. And that, that tension is like hovering in every conversation. It's like thick, you know, it couldn't be more thick. That sort of tension couldn't be more thick if there were, if it wasn't like the good, the bad and the ugly, and there are three guys in an open field and (laughs) they're about to have a standoff. Right. Right. Like, you know, they're on some, yeah. some kind of conversation is going to happen and it's either going to be healing or it's going to push them into a state of like interrelational oblivion. Right. Further isolation right. and, you know, eventual despair. And that's right. the, you know, <laughs> that that's at stake. That's, and that's a really big deal. 
Um, yeah, it's, it's forgiveness very, and restoration yeah. or it's oblivion and disconnection. That's yeah. what, that's what's at stake. Nothing, you know, no big deal. No big deal. NVD. Yep. Yeah. It's not a Western with there was some action or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we should probably wrap this up. We're at an hour and a half almost. Uh, what are you looking for as you keep going? You said you read a little bit ahead, but is there... Yeah, I know, think that exact thing, kind of the 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 elucidation of the mysterious underpinnings of this dysfunctional dynamic in the family. Um, and then some kind of attempt to resolve that, to, to understand and to forgive. Hmm. How about you? Uh, more about food. What's the, um, what's the role of, I mean, as you know, kind of someone who uh, cooking for people is very important, like just in terms of the expression of my affection and like, I don't know, like cooking is such a big deal for me mm-hmm. um, psychologically <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that, um, that I'm, I want to see how she uses meals, food, the table, dining rooms, the, the act of preparing a meal to express deeper theological and interpersonal hmm. ideas. That's what I'm looking for because uh, it's standing out for me more than past times that I've read the book. So I have something to bring up for further podcasts. Um, I want to know what you, I want to compare Marilyn Robinson to Wendell Berry. Um, (laughs) There's, I mean, they both take on this uh, culture of small town America and family dynamics and food and vocation and spirituality and culture. Um, and the kinds of people that they both write about are in the same time frame and very similar to each other, but the books are so, so different mm-hmm. and, and the feeling of reading them is so different. And I'm really curious. I, I've been comparing it just nonstop as I've been reading it. Cause I just read a ton of Wendell Berry over the summer and I know he's really popular amongst our listeners too. And you love Wendell Berry. So like I do. And so I'm, I'm curious about that. And I want to talk about it at some point. Uh, and I, specifically this, how, how, I mean, writing style and all that stuff. And, but one thing I'm really curious about is which is kind of the truer story because they tell such very different stories about American life um, hmm. and the nature of what it means to live in a small town and, and have these kinds of relationships. There's this loneliness to Marilyn Robinson and, and there's this membership in Wendell Berry. And I'm really curious about, you know, which, which of those things we feel like maybe tells the truer story about a small town American life, um, which we probably can't tell for sure, but I'm curious. So that's hmm. another that's thing that I'd yeah. love to talk about. Okay. Let's keep that on on the brain as we continue forward with this. Don't forget about Scully Academy. You can head over to scullyacademy.com to learn about their uh, their tutoring options and their full course instruction. Again, that's S-C-H-O-L-E, scullyacademy.com. Uh, remember to keep Tim and his family in your in your prayers, uh, mm. your thoughts. Mm-hmm. He's moving and dealing with, you know, his father's battling some health issues. And uh, then don't forget about the uh, the content we have here. Of course, we've got the plays, the thing going through the Merchant of Venice right now. We've got the Daily Poem, and we'll be getting our be beginning our Patreon series on the Lord of the Rings next week. So I guess uh, the fourteenth will be the first day that we record an episode on that. Um, I guess that's it. So uh, for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, until next week, happy reading. Mm-hmm.